Alternative ways of seeing, being and doing are vital in imagining and building the future. In October 2019, the Emerging Writers Festival collaborated with Arts Centre Melbourne to produce a series of talks called Critical Conversations as part of the inaugural Future Echoes Festival. This episode of the EWF podcast is a recording of one of those critical conversations titled Beyond Access. Keep listening for a discussion on access and inclusivity in the arts between artists and art workers Jessica Ibukashi, Joe Dunbar, and Hannah Morphy Walsh. Thank you for coming. Um, to begin, I'd like to start by acknowledging the First Nations. Uh, first storytellers and traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri and Boongarrung people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and I'd also like to pay my respects to any Indigenous people in the room today. Um, thank you for coming today. Uh, today we're going to be talking about access. Um, so this is called Critical Conversations Beyond Access. This panel event is a collaboration between the Arts Centre Melbourne and Emerging Writers Festival and is part of the inaugural Future Echoes Festival run by Arts Centre Melbourne. Today we'll be discussing, discussing how we interact with the arts, inclusive practices and the world around us. We'll touch on what type of barriers marginalised people might face in the arts and what organisations can do to improve. Um, my name is Jessica Ivagashe. I will be moderating today's panel. And um, now I'd like to introduce our panellists. So first up, Joe Dunbar. Joe is a choreographer, director and facilitator with 20 years of experience in, professional, in the professional arts industry. Joe's facilitator strength is enabling the learning space to be one where we learn from ourselves and each other. She has co-founded Australia's first dance company for deaf and hearing performers. The Delta Project, performed with renowned arts companies Strange Fruit and Restless Dance Theatre, taught dance and physical theatre workshops to companies both regionally and nationally. Born profoundly deaf and bilingual in both English and Auslan, she is passionate about all things diverse, experimental and inclusive. Hannah Morphy Walsh. Hannah. I swear to God, I'll take that off you. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself, Hannah? <laughs> <laughs> How would you like me to introduce you? Moving on. <laughs> uh, Hannah is another panellist today. <laughs> I would just say uh, Hannah is a writer, artist and a friend of mine. So I feel like today's conversation will be really interesting. So thank you so much for coming. Um, there will be opportunities for questions at the end. Um, so if you have any, just please keep them till the end of the conversation. Um, so we're going to start today by um, asking the panellists how they personally interact with the arts as an artist and as a lover of the arts. So who would like to answer that question first? Would you like to go? <laughs> would you like me to go? Okay. Um, hi. So are we going to talk about the arts in a broad context? You know, going to theatre shows, yeah, um, reading a, a story. And, yeah. Okay. But um, I was born, let's start there, I was born deaf. And um, I grew up in the mainstream here in Wales. And um, which means that basically I was taught to lip read and learn how to use 
what noise that my hearing aids gave to me, uh, which meant that my first language is English. Now, being deaf, a lot of people assume that um, Auslan is my first language, but I actually didn't come into Auslan, which is Australian sign language, until um, 10 years ago. So, um, going to a show, for example, if I went to see a show, I love to see captioning scrolling around um, or some sort of prescribed text if they're speaking involved as a preference over losing Auslan. Um, visible, anything visible, anything that really grabs my eyes and the context, it really draws it out for me. Yeah. Um, I could talk about it for a really long time, but I think I'm going to pass it over to Hannah first. Um, I, similarly to Joe, born profoundly deaf, um, I actually went to school, like they call them mainstream schools with deaf facilities. So I learned Auslan when I was like, whatever, an age. Um, so, but I actually also really prefer captions on those things, um, which there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and a lot of it comes down to also, like, if you couldn't tell by my obnoxious voice, um, I had quite a lot of therapy as a child, like speech therapy, um, you know, being, like, being immersed in books like, I was taught to read when I was two. Like, I have had this lifelong... Like, I say that I've had this lifelong love of reading. But, I mean, also, it's, it wasn't necessarily a choice. I started consuming, you know, the written word at an early age. Um, and a lot of my connection to the arts sort of comes from there. And, I don't know, I'm very obsessed with the idea of, like, how, like, an artist can be understood... Um, can, I, can I interrupt there on um, what you were saying about um, reading books and that? Because I'm, I'm a bit older, so I, I spent a lot of my childhood in the 80s, where this is before the teletext captioning and everything on the telly happened. So I spent a lot of time in the library, like, you know, um, Saturdays, Sundays, all day reading, immersing myself in the world of words. Um, because it enables me to be imaginative um, rather than having to try and listen to the world around me or whatever, anything. Yeah. Great, thank you. Um, and from that question, do you think the digital world helps to make the arts more accessible? If so, why and how? Oh, look, and he's talking about digital. The digital yeah, sort of social media it's age. Huge, yeah. yeah, it's huge in what um, possibilities it's opening up for access. Um, it enables so much more than was previously possible, primarily because of technology, okay? Um, you can use programs to run things in live shows, for example. And I'm, I'm going to talk from a live show perspective because I'm a choreographer and that's kind of where my field is. Um, and 
the ability to use visual effects in shows to make it accessible for a wide range of audience also can appeal to people who are on the spectrum, for example, or who are low vision. Um, you can do certain things with lights and um, shadows and captioning text, embedding Auslan into the performance where you put the interpreter. Um, it's just, that's just the tip of the iceberg and what is possible in terms of um, access because of digital. Um, as a, someone who lived experience, I mean, introducing the, the phone to SMS. It's, it's, okay, I, I also came from a world prior to mobile phones. <laughs> Having the, the mobile phone invention and where it's at today is pretty used and in terms of embedding me into society has meant a lot for my independence. Um, I... I mean, I get sick a lot, so, like, the digital world is usually my only connection to a lot of the arts. Um, yeah, no, I mean, like, I have, I have virtual, I mean, of course there are, like, you know, it is unfiltered, it is always, like, I just, like, don't criticise that digital world for existing because if it didn't I would just still be at home but very bored. <laughs> um, has there been any like show or experience or maybe like types of content that you think um, have been done really well that sort of cater to access in a digital way? Um, any organisations or yeah, shows? Organizations yeah, organisations or yeah. specific, yeah, shows, experiences, yeah. exhibitions. Oh, gosh, there are many. Um, I, can talk, I can talk to you about what show I went to see, I think, last year. And it was actually just um, a grassroots show that came up as part of the Miss Summer Festival. And um, um, really low budget, probably zero budget. Um, as we know, because a lot of the common schools for people um, who are trying to put access into those shows go, oh, we can't afford it. Um, but so this, this is a theatre company, really small, and it was at the Brunswick Mechanic Institute. And um, I'd gone because I was supporting my partner. Um, I then they knew somebody who was in the show. Um, there was nothing about access or whatsoever. But um, they have scrolling tech. It, it was embedded in the show and it was referred to throughout the show and it became a part of the show. And I love the surprise of going somewhere um, without actually it being highlighted that it's accessible. It's just, is, you know. Um, there, there's, a, there's been a big movement, and especially over the last decade in, in, in Melbourne, that more and more and more, more companies are setting up to really try and embed access into their program. Um, and a lot of the flagship companies, like Art Centre Melbourne, obviously, and um, um, Melbourne Theatre Company, all the big ones, loads of money, are really thinking about how they can do that. But the smaller organisations and the smaller theatre shows um, are really starting to think about how they can make the show 
more accessible for this day and age and the, the, the type of audience member. For example, um, having a relaxed performance um, means, you know, it's just like being here, isn't it? You know, you can go here, you can, you can come and go as you please. It's not dark, the lights are up. Um, you can make noise if you want to, you know, it's, it's, it's perfectly, there's no expectation. You need to sit there and be still for an hour and a half and watch the performance. Yeah. So, um, I think there's been a real shift in that. There's still a lot of work to be done, but the shift is starting to happen because I'm already starting to see quite a lot of small organisations and small dealer companies um, and dance companies really start to think about the audience members. Um, and also making it accessible to one audience member who is in a minority means they'll invite their friends and family so they're actually selling five tickets instead of one. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Hannah? Has there been any experience in the arts that you think has um, really catered to a lot of different access requirements or maybe some type of like social media content that you think was done really well in terms of I mean, connecting you with the arts? Aside from like adding on to anything Joy said, no. <laughs> like I don't have any examples on stuff I'm sorry. I know you're very critical of some um, art organisations or experiences who don't cater to uh, access requirements. So I'm critical of everyone though. <laughs> no, like there are, it's unfair. Like there are quite a lot of like, I think there's a lot of people who do access very well, but they do it with the intention of like a particular type of audience. Um, so like for a lot of things that, you know, are fully accessible in one field, like say they're physically accessible, um, I mean, if there's such a thing as fully physically accessible ever. <laughs> um, like, they're not necessarily, like, you know, it's someplace like Testing Ground where, you know, it's fully physically accessible-ish. Um, but um, there's not, like, it's just so bright and loud and overwhelming. Or... Um, Places like I don't go to deaf events. I'm very sorry. <laughs> I'm a traitor to the community. Um, okay. I don't always go to deaf events either. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I like as like as a deaf person. Like yeah, like I can mostly do with it. But like, there's a lot of like other things that are not necessarily good. Like you know, there are ways in tiny little crowded spaces <laughs> or, um, or they're just very sort of, I don't know, intense and just very bad mm. things. It's easy to criticise because I have a lot of things wrong with me. Um, so you've both touched on this a little bit, but um, can you maybe elaborate on what type of barriers you both experience when it comes to the arts? Um, <laughs> sorry, I've just seen a friend. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so I 
oh man, there's so many, there's 20 years of experience right there, you know. Um, so let's, let's talk about perhaps for the first 15 years, um, I thought there was something wrong with me. Yeah, because I was deaf. Okay, that would start there. That would just, but then I started learning about um, a different way to think about myself, which was actually that the problem wasn't with me. It was with um, everything around me. And um, that's, that's a philosophy that a lot of people are trying to push, especially people who have barriers. And um, it's, that it's about acceptance of who we are. And nobody's saying, for, for all of my life, I was told that there's something wrong with me because I can't hear very well. And so that became a part of um, everything. Um, and that also fueled the, the barrier that I face as an artist and as a human being and trying to go as an audience member to the art. Um, was that, oh, I'm not going to be able to hear what they're saying or see what they're saying, or um, it's just going to be boring because it's very text-heavy. And I, I don't like people who talk too much. I love the sound of my own voice, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, <laughs> um, so barriers are many. First, first, the first barrier is other people's attitude towards, um, oh, as a dancer, People will go, oh, you're deaf, how can you dance? I'm like, well, it's just move. How do you dance? And so um, I actually sort of recently retired from the dance world because I just got tired of that. I've done a few good things, but I was tired of coming against that barrier. Um, as an audience member, like I said, there are still things that my partner's hearing. And so to go to show. Um, and we've got a lot of friends in the arts industry and a lot of actors who are making shows. And um, I'd love to see their work, but I won't go because I don't want to sit there for an hour and a half. I haven't got an hour and a half of free time to sit there and, um, because I, I don't understand what they're saying. So that's a really big barrier. It's a communication and um, uh, people's attitude towards myself and um, the other one, if you like, oh, you have a disability, okay, we need to make things accessible for you, um, which is great. But alongside that, it's still pigeonholing. Um, rather than thinking, hey, we're all here in the same space together. So that's really how um, that would be a big barrier. And, I think overcoming that, if there are some big steps being taken now, people are being trained, their eyes are opening, and they're starting to think of it in a different way, and themselves in a different way. And I've, since I've started thinking of myself in a different way and realising that the problem, not with me, but with everybody else's attitude of me, I think I'm pretty cool, you know? Mm -hmm. And maybe you can do that, that start doing that as well. Um, yeah, okay. No, like, when I... I mean, there aren't really that many barriers to art in general. Like, to be able to express yourself, like, in a way that, you know, either is pleasing or is symbolic or whatever, is, um... I mean, anyone can do that in any way that they want, but it's the broader world being able to sort of enter that exchange with, I think, other people 
that sort of you hit these, like, diff... The biggest thing for me, actually, at the moment, um, because I've been going, like, probably punishing myself um, by going to a lot of, like, writers and artists' talks and so on, um, I, like I mentioned before, I actually do quite like using... Um, I was like, like, I like having interpreters there. But the problem is, like, my list at the moment of interpreters I actually tolerate is so tiny because I think I was, like, showing the story backstage um, of, like, one interpreter who translated the word colonisation as white people law. Like, there's just uh. a huge gap between the idea of who engages with the arts um, and, like, who actually mm. wants to engage with the arts. You know, there's not... I don't know. I, like, there's still this idea of the arts as this thing that, you know, like, this system of, you know... I mean, these, these, these defined things, like, I don't know. I have a friend who's a trumpet player, actually, and is also deaf. Um, <laughs> and she gets asked the same question all the time. She hates it. She's like, I... What's the question? What, what's the question? Oh, the question about, like, but how do you play music if you're deaf? It's like, well, I can physically yeah, 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 move. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, So, yeah, I don't think... Like, when we talk about barriers to the arts, we're talking about barriers to, like, the formal, I think, institutions, the greater world. We're not talking about, like, barriers to ourselves being able to practice. We're talking about how other people have interacted with us in a way that's so destructive and so harmful that we end up just withdrawing. I don't know. Sorry, no, that, that was a downer. That makes perfect sense. Give me a It is more, more so barriers to the art world. Yes, and art like, community. Perk us up. Um, so what type of practices do you think that uh, people and organisations can implement to improve access in the arts and break, help break down those barriers? Do you want to go first? I always go first. So. <laughs> I hate going go first, first if you hadn't noticed. Um, <laughs> God, I think... Like, I personally think intentionality, that's just because I, like, I'm young, I have energy, I still believe in the good in humanity. Um, I think that, you know, being, because not, okay, so here's the thing, not all access needs are going to be able to be met within a single thing. Um, like, the way I speak I could try, I am trying as hard as possible to turn it off and be simple, like, in my speaking, um, but it is not, like, neurochemically, I am not capable of being, say, like, accessible to someone who needs, like, very simple... I mean, I can try. Like, we're going to be able to have a conversation, but in terms of, like, an environment that would be conducive to their creativity, that is one in which I would just get twitchy and agitated and, like you know, uncomfortable in. Um, like, people who need space to move around and to, you know, do things with their body, like, and to make noise, um, they are naturally going to come up against people 
who have, you know, sensory processing difficulties that mean that they actually need a sensory diet. Um, so I think, yeah, flexibility, like being very intentional in what you're creating and like, you know, being as inclusive as possible isn't about being, you know, inclusive of everyone. It's about actually figuring out, you know, who does this thing that I'm doing? Who does it speak to? Who do I want it to speak to? Who's missing in this? And how do I, like, capture that? How do I, you know, get that next time? I think. Anyway, I've talked to Um, um the, oh, okay. The, the first thing I think people can do is really start to shift their thinking um, from thinking that disability is something wrong with uh, the world or the person. Um, and once that shift happens, then it will start to affect um, the design of the art, if you like. Um, it will start to sort of shift the way that people see that artwork, whatever it is, in whatever form it is, you know, whether it's... Uh, OK, an example could be this, that um, a few years ago, I worked... Actually, I think it was with the Emotions in Writing Festival, um, and I was a part of a writing programme, um, a deaf writing programme, that was run by Arnold Dable. And... Um, so everybody wrote, but this one person um, who made maps, and her language was Australian sign language. It was not English, which is what books are written in, or English books, anyway. Um, so and for her, the visual book would be in the film, and you'd be watching the person tell the story. So... Um, I think it's about being open to different ways of telling the story that is accessible for everybody. And it's kind of like in a universal way, if you like. Um, if you're thinking about one particular genre or community, for example, um, say some, a community that might have hypersensitivity and might be on a spectrum and you're creating a performance, accessibility for them, and you're thinking of it being a relaxed performance, like I spoke about earlier. Um, other people can come in and enjoy that space. They don't necessarily need to be on the spectrum. So their experience is transformed. So, um, so that's one way of doing that, is thinking about it as being open. But another way of doing that, there are a lot of resources. Um, there's an organisation, uh, Art Access Victoria, who have a quick, quick tips page where if you don't have any money but you want to make your work more accessible, you can just have a look on there. And it, it gives you some good pointers and good places to start. That's just for now. But then you talk about the digital age and what's, possible, what's going to be possible in five years' time is far beyond what I'm already thinking about today. I'm quite excited to see because my passion is about pulling access into work. And um, it's not tacking it on and going, let's have an interpreter, let's have all your description, let's, you know, make a tactile to it, everything. Let's just have a work as it is and 
It doesn't matter how you move or how you observe the world. You can still go and see the work. It hasn't, it's just it, how it is. So for me, that's universal access. Um, but it's still quite far in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe both explain a little bit more about um, different types of access. So I think that when we hear the word access, we think, well, some people might automatically think access for people with disabilities. Um, but even like within the umbrella of disability, there are neurodivergent people or people with mental illness. Um, and there's also different types of access. So um, that other marginalised people might experience. So people of colour, people from migrant backgrounds who might not um, have English as a first language or people from working class or poorer backgrounds. Um, can you maybe elaborate on um, different types of access that maybe intersect with your um, access as a person with a disability? Um, uh, since I've started like getting on stages more, um, this is terrifying, by the way. Um, the thing that I've like come up against actually quite interestingly is that a lot of Melbourne is accessible for audiences specifically. There's still not this concept of the creator as having a disability. Um, things are still run to very tight timetables like backstage. Um, a friend of mine like was telling me about like an accessible venue that they were performing in that the, they had to share the, like all the other performers had a bathroom backstage, um, but the friend had to share an, like the only other like physically accessible bathroom with like the patrons and they would have to leave the green room in order to do so. And like, mm. it's just these, these things that, Hmm. Like, I think in terms of access, it's not, like, it's not, I start that. Um, in terms of access, it's actually about making sure that the people that you want, like, the people that are in, in the group are safe. Um, like, No Cops at Pride is a huge movement. Um, and... It is one that, like, the white queer community does not fucking understand. Um, but actually, the thing is, like, police make certain kinds of bodies safe. They, but the rest of us, they make fundamentally unsafe. So when we're talking about, like, you know, different types of access, like, it's, it's just so holistic. Like, it's what actually makes a space, you know usable you know like it's not just can I get there but it's like when I get there am I going to be able to contribute in the same way as another person you know on my like is an, like audience members that are equally able to heckle um, <laughs> you know or like you know um, performers on stage like are they 
should all be able to access the same stage, the same sort of like backstage things. Um, they should be, if they're passing through the neighborhood, they like should be passing through, like they shouldn't have to, you know, be trying and failing to hail a taxi because they're too dark skinned. Um, something happens to my family regularly. They, you know, like they, I have family who have PTSD from various things. And when they see the uniform, like the yellow jacket, they physically like lock up, like they start to cramp, it hurts. Um, so when we, yeah, like the different types of access is it's not about, it's not just about being sort of physically accessible. It's about being like actually safe. That makes sense. Yeah, um, I, it's absolutely right. That, um, it's just, when you said the word access, I felt like, Swapping it for another word called inclusion. Yeah. Okay, only because access is a little about accessing something. And there are lots of minority groups who have difficulty in accessing something for whatever reason. That could be um, um, disability, socioeconomic, um, environmentally trying to get into the building, or, you know, there are, there are some barriers that prevent them from that access. But what I hear that you're talking about, Hannah, is um, in inclusion. Um, being able to go into a space and feel safe and included and not looked at and not singled out yeah. for whatever reason that is. Um, and for me, that is very much what access is, um, in, in my world anyway. But um, in terms of trying to make the world a bit more inclusive, if you like, it always goes down to attitude for me um, because attitude will eventually affect um, the design of the building, the environment, and how you get inside, the access, and whether people have access to the toilet or not in the green room because, you know, that, that's, that, that will come with somebody going, hang on a second, this isn't right. Everybody in the space needs to be, have the same inclusive opportunities, if you like. Um, so it affects design and also it can affect how people make things accessible for people from a socioeconomic background, like poor socioeconomic, who can't afford to get places. For whatever reason, they could have a disability and live way below the poverty line. Or, um, you know, let's, let's just have, let's just kind of afford it. So maybe you have unsold seats. Maybe you can offer those seats at a discount to um, people who are pension card holders or whatever to, to enable them to come. There are, there are things that can be done, um, especially in policy, especially in budgets and all of that. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah it does, okay, yeah. Cool. Um, I'm interested to know if uh, you both have recommendations for resources that maybe people can um, find to learn more about different types of access because I think people might experience one type of, you know, um, not one type of access or one type of barrier into the arts um, and I think it's really important for everyone to educate themselves so that the arts do become more inclusive. So are there any resources, books or anything that you could recommend yeah. um, people read? 
Um, absolutely. Uh, there's an organisation that's just down the road called Arts Access Victoria. Yeah. They are um, led by people who have lived experience of disability. Uh, they come from the world of disability and access. And, um, but the philosophy of which sits there can influence other areas so it doesn't have to be about the arts. It could be about way of life, you know, thinking. They've, if you go onto their website, they've got um, quick links. And um, from these links, you can find more about access symbols, what they mean, um, how to work within your organisation. Um, that, that's a really good resource and a really good place to start. Um, and they, they have a lot of experience within that organisation. Um, that's artist-specific arts. And they actually have uh, training workshops that um, organisations can take and, you know, um, that will train the staff and people to think about accessing how their customer service is with people who come through the door. Um, also people who are designing shows. There are also a number of other consultants online that you can get in. Uh, but I think that really the key is that you need to consult with the community group or the minority group that you want to work with. Yeah. And they're the ones who can give you the information. So for example, um, if you want to work with indigenous people, you're going, you're going to talk to them about how best to work with them, right? If you want to work with deaf, per, deaf people, you, you might call up a deaf person and go, or not call up, but contact a deaf person. Yeah. And you go, okay, um, this is what I want to do. How does it work for you? Yeah. Can you consult? And you pay them to do it. You know, yeah, you yeah. respect them and you pay them to do it. Uh, that's where you're going to get the information key hand, uh, first hand. It's there. Um, so those are two things. Architects, Victoria, and consultancy. Yeah. Great. Hannah, do you have any suggestions? You know, most of it. My suggestion is always ask the people that aren't, like, you know. Well, I think, mm. I think sometimes it can be emotionally draining for communities and individuals to always have to be that source of information for other people. So <laughs> I think that that's a really good way of going about it. But, like... I think it's also important that people educate themselves in other ways True. as well. So how do you think people could do that? Um, I mean, AOV is good. Like, I, mm. in terms of any organisation, like, always take it with a grain of salt, you know. Um, it's, I think, like, yeah, I think that, you know, Google is actually really <laughs> good right now. Um, look up. Like, if you can look up self-advocacy groups, um, usually they will have really good information on, like, so say you're looking for a specific thing, um, like the, um, like, um, people on Newstart, um, for example, like, you want to hear, like, you want to know how to sort of best target or how to best work with people who are, you know, living under the conditions of New Start, which, by the way, are atrocious. Um, the, like, you Google, like, New Start and, you know, say, advocacy or New Start and activism, and, like, you will find, 
like you will find an organization, you will find links. Um, yeah, it's more about like looking, I think. Um, although, yeah, true. Although I'm a little suspect on Google, only because, um, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, looks a little bit, only because we need to be careful about finding groups that um, may not have been led by the people who have lived experience yeah. of that community. That's true. Yeah. Um, so there's worth doing your research into who is behind these groups and are they qualified, you know, um, by being qualified, having actual experience of um, that particular access group yeah no i get like i'm a natural obsessive though um i do tend to like when i run into any particular group i immediately like that's why i come across so critical <laughs> um, i tend to like look around and actually like try to find out who they're connected to like who's saying what about them um you know, especially in terms of, like, diversity groups that are generally headed by, like, a couple of, you know, non-government, um, non-profits. Like, it's, you know, these kinds of things can go either way. Either they can, you know, be, have this really benefit, like, they can be led by the community that they're working with, or they can just be, like, you know, this kind of saviour bullshit, like, feel-good um, you know, they can be like autism speaks, basically. Um, so I can see from your face you have no idea what's wrong with autism speaks. Do I know? Yeah. Do you want to explain okay. what you mean? Um, I have a little bit, but not. Um, I don't have experience of um, being on the spectrum. So, yeah. Yeah, no. Um, there's, so it's basically a group that's run by parents and you know carers type thing um and its main mm. like its main criticism comes from autistic advocates um autistic self-advocates and non-speaking self-advocates who like mm. who speak out against its messaging because it talks about you know grieving your disabled you know grieving the child you could have had to make way for the disabled child you have um you know it talks about working towards you know a cure and like, you know, like the idea of parenting a disabled child, you know, is being a disability warrior. Um, like, it's not unique to Autism Speaks, it's just that there's such a lot of material about that particular organisation, how very targeted they are against particularly people with autism. Um, mm. And... I don't know, like there's a few, like when I was younger, Vic Def was a bit like that. Um, <laughs> they were a bit sort of, let's give a voice to every child. I think they've grown up. I think they've gotten better. Great, Maybe. so the consensus is community-led organisations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, to wrap up, um, I just wanted to ask, what is your hope for the future of the arts? <laughs> mm. Big question. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to go? What would you like to see in the arts that maybe you don't always have to think mm. about all the time? Um, you know? I, I know that I would like to be able to go and experience an art form 
whatever it is, and not have to be concerned about whether it's accessible to me or not. Um, I want to be able to go and choose to go and not feel like I have to go because there's one night of the week that I can go because it's Australian interpreters or captions or whatever. Um, I want to be able to walk up when I want to. So it's about having freedom of choice. Um, I, I, I want for the, I want for inclusion to be not even a second thought. It's just is the way it is. It's not even contested. It's not even debated how much of the budget to be going and how much is left to put into inclusion. It's, it's more like it's a priority. It's up there with the importance of paying the CEO's wages. <sighs> you know, um, that we want this art form or whatever it is to be accessible slash inclusive for anybody who wants to experience it. And that's non-negotiable. That's what I'd like the future of art. It's still a long way off, but it's getting closer. Yeah. And I know that a lot of people are working hard for that. But there's still some big players in play that are old school very patriarchal, sorry, men, no, um, um, patriarchal way of thinking and controlling. So, but I, I think there was change happening, yeah. What about you, Hannah? I'm going to go with the wishy-washy optimist, like, answer, which is I just want to see people, like, I mean... For me, you see, <laughs> you know, I just want people to be able to experience, you know, like any art form that they want to, whether that's as a participant or as an audience member, you know, as an amateur, as a broke person with like no equipment whatsoever, you know, like, yeah, basically just the same thing as you. <laughs> um, but I want it for other people because I'm tired. I just like... Bed is nice. <laughs> Great, thank you. Um, so now I think we have time for a few questions if there are any that anyone wants to ask. Ruby? <laughs> I just wanted to ask Jess if you would like to answer that question as well. Um, <laughs> I would probably say similar. Yeah, I like would like to not think about it. I would like people who experience access barriers to not think about it, to just attend and experience the arts the way the majority does. And I would really like more funding to go into making more art experiences accessible. Yeah. Well, funding the big one in the yeah. arts, isn't it? Let's not go there. Stop funding prisons. We don't need the... Victoria does not need an active military. We need... Like, give us the money. Just give us the money. Are there any other questions in the audience? Yeah. Um, I, I guess this is more of a, a, in addition to what, what you were saying before about... Um, poor people not having, poor people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds not having access um, as audience members. It would be great if institutions 
um, such as, I guess, uh, places like this, which offer events that are incredibly financially inaccessible to a lot of people. And um, you made the point about the empty seats. It's like, yes, those empty seats can be filled. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so sorry, that wasn't a question. <laughs> Yeah, oh, great. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, I think people don't realise, you know, um, like art centre is a big venue. It's not always going to be full, and yes, you can do that. Um, I think in a smaller company, it's, it's probably not as easy, but I think um, what p most people don't realise is, especially if I'm coming from a disability perspective, that uh, they live below the poverty line, they don't have the money to get from one place to the next, which transport or the wheelchair is broken down, or, you know. Um, there are things there that they need to start thinking about how they can best support these people um, to access something that's enjoyable. Yeah. I know that till the gender um, the Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival does that every year um, for their community and it's really great. Um, and I think more places should do it. I think that's, we live in a capitalist society and there's such a focus on making money, especially for art organisations who don't have a lot of funding and funding is so limited. Um, yeah, but I th still think that it's possible even to just have a small amount of... Um, Free tickets or tickets who are uh, tickets that are sold at a lower cost for people from socio lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Yeah. Yep. If it's not just about funding, um, I mean, I used the word intentionality before, so I'm going to say it again. Like, be really, like, you know, really, just really intentional. Like, you know, plan things the way a disabled person does, where you check, like, a month out, you check a day out, you obsessively checking the hour before, like you're on Google Maps trying to remember if you're at the right place and if this is the door, if the door's around the corner, sorry, <laughs> tangent. Um, but like my favourite thing, example of like it's not just about money is that um, in terms of money, so much money when it comes to access for people, like, for various reasons, like outreach programs, um, or actually, even just outreach programs, huge waste of money, because the, if the original, if the original thing that you are doing 
um, is designed, you know, with like with the community that you're like with the people that you're trying to be, you know, accessible to um, in mind. If you're like actually working with and around these people, um, you know, it will become very inherently clear like what people need. <laughs> you know, it's not. Yeah, like, in the end, it's not actually about throwing money at a problem. It's about, like, taking a step back and, you know, constantly self-auditing, like, making sure that you aren't creating an unnecessary problem that you're going to have to go in and fix later, if that... Absolutely. Don't do it later, do it earlier. Absolutely. Just do it from first conception of an idea, first teardrop of an idea, that's when you start thinking about it and planning for it because um, it's, it's much harder to deal with down the track. Um, but also, budgets are weird, right? We all know that, okay? Um, it's about also looking at areas, if you have a limit at which you can budget for, what can you cut to move it to the top of the list? Catering, maybe do you need to cater? Or do you know, these are things, it can be done. And people just need to look in those corners and go, ah. Oh. But first, they need to shift their attitude. If they shift their attitude, they're not going to have that problem. Yep. I'm not sure if this answers your question or not, but um, I don't think it's just about money. I think it's about how we work with communities and marginalised people. Um, and I can only talk from my own experience as a producer and as an artist that I think it's about re being really considerate and understanding and that maybe, um, you know, for example, someone with depression or anxiety might not reply to your email, <laughs> like, for a week or whatever, you know, like... <laughs> so um, really changing the way we work and it's really difficult because we, you know, we're still a capitalist society and we work till deadlines and, you know, we're reliant on making money and, but I think that we, we do need to like all sort of change our way of thinking a little bit, especially when working with communities. Any other questions before we wrap up? Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Joe and Hannah. Thank you everyone for coming today. Should we give him a round of applause? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Jeff, for having us. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to check out the full Digital Writers Festival program at 2019.digitalwritersfestival.com. Drop us a review, recommend us to a friend, and hit subscribe wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Critical Conversations was curated by me, Ruby Rose Pivot-Marsh, the Associate Producer at Emerging Writers Festival, as part of Art Centre Melbourne's inaugural Future Echoes Festival. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to the elders of the lands that this podcast reaches.